Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in today for another episode. The best part of running a podcast is I get to connect with like-minded individuals from all over the world. And today was no exception. I got to speak with Light Watkins. Light is a best-selling author and an inspirational keynote speaker. He's delivered over 500 wellness-themed talks around the globe. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. Light Watkins, thanks for joining me on the Mindful Movement Podcast, man. Thank you. Good to be here. You're a busy guy. You've written a bunch of books. You've been doing a lot of traveling. Um, there's a lot I want to dive in. I don't think we'll get into all of it today. Mm -hmm. uh, your recent book, or no, not your recent book, your book, Travel Light, mm -hmm. really caught my attention. Um, I've definitely been inspired by the ideas of minimalism. It probably doesn't look that way from the background <laughs> of my desk where there's like a clutter of uh, plants and rocks and books. And um, But I've definitely, it's definitely the movement of minimalism has, has caught my attention in phases uh, over my own journey. Mm -hmm. And you took it to, I don't want to say an extreme, but I mean, you've expressed it uh thoroughly and i definitely want to hear more about like what that's like from what i understand you essentially live out of a backpack am i correct in, in that so yeah in 2018 um <clears throat> well prior to that i was living in los angeles for about 16 years and had a thriving meditation practice where I was teaching people, thousands of people meditation, ended up working with a bunch of celebrities and, um, you know, it was very much nested in Santa Monica, beautiful two bedroom place, about 10 minutes walk, walking from the beach. And I got this internal nudge to 
get rid of everything that did not fit into a carry-on bag and to start living nomadically and minimalistically. That's a word, minimalistically. And <laughs> um, yeah, so I moved out of my apartment into that carry-on bag, not knowing how long it was gonna last. And I realized about a year later that I was still, I still had too much stuff. So I downsized from that carry-on bag to a backpack. And simultaneously, I learned how to like hand wash my clothes. So that made, that made it a lot easier. And I could cut down my, my wardrobe to just a proper capsule wardrobe with just, you know, just the essentials. And so I've been doing that. Ever, I've been doing it ever since then. And, but during that experience, I sort of developed this prince, the principles of what I call spiritual minimalism, which is the practice of minimalism from the inside out. Because what I realized is that it's not really about getting rid of stuff. I think the conventional wisdom is that if I can get rid of all this stuff, that I'm going to have a greater sense of peace. You know, if I can have a sparse living room or get rid of the clutter underneath my bed, I'll sleep better at night. And that's not really where better sleep comes from. <laughs> better sleep comes from getting rid of the internal clutter, the emotional baggage, the stress, the trauma, the, the fear, the, you know, past wounds that a lot of people are carrying around with them, even though on the outside, it looks like, oh, you, they've got their stuff together, um, or they live in a very beautiful architecture, or you know they're living the dream. But internally, if you're still holding on to something that is not serving you, a toxic relationship, a soul-sucking job, then you, it's not going to be possible to find peace through getting rid of things externally. So that's the whole premise of this this work that I have coming out called travel light spiritual minimalism to live a more fulfilled life okay so really about cleaning up under the bed of the mind not the physical bed <laughs> that you're sleeping in. yeah yeah now, and, and, is that is, I'm sorry is that born out of like um some kind of pain or suffering that you feel you went through and you know if, if there is and you don't want to talk about it that's fine too but um, is it like from the wound comes the gift kind of uh, thing? Or is this merely from like observation from what's around you? Um, that's a good question. And historically, like through teaching meditation, I would say 90% of the people that I work with came to me to learn because they had some rock bottom moment, whether it was spiritually, physically, emotionally. And then there are the other 10% of the people who came from curiosity, like they hear about this, this practice that has these wonderful benefits and they want to optimize their life. And so they come to, to learn how to do it. And I would say I was more in the curiosity category. I didn't have, I didn't have a, um, a dark night of the soul that prompted my exploration of all of this. But I have been practicing and teaching meditation since the mid-1990s. Oh, wow. And so that's the first principle of, of spiritual minimalism is to cultivate a, a stronger connection to your what I call your heart voice or your intuition. 
and fewer practices can do that more efficiently than the practice of daily meditation. So although that's not one of the things that I was meditating to experience, it was a desirable side effect. And I realized years in that I was able to let go of things a lot easier. So a lot of times when people say, you know, when did you start practicing this minimalism stuff? I will say, oh, it's, you know, May of 2018. But the real answer is I started practicing it when I took my meditation practice seriously, because minimalism is essentially the um, act of being able to let go of things that are not serving you. And that could be anything. It could be furniture, I guess, but it could also be emotional things. And, and I was able to do that with more and more ease as a result of, of being able to feel in real time, okay, is this thing aligned or is it not aligned? And it's not like I was having that conversation in my head. It just, it just either made sense to continue engaging in or it didn't make sense. And then in that case, I would just move on to the next thing. So that's something that happens when anybody practices uh, stillness on a regular basis is they find it a lot easier to, to move towards things that are relevant and feel aligned with, with who, where they are in that season of their life and to move away from things that may have been relevant at one point, but they've outgrown them. That makes a lot of sense. You, so I want to circle back a little bit. You said you've been teaching meditation since the 90s. I got to ask, how old are you, man? <laughs> I've been practicing since the mid 90s. I started oh. teaching in, in 2007. I just turned 50. I just turned 50 years old. Oh, man, you're doing it right. You look great. <laughs> well, I have to ask the, the, about the best, some of the your best anti aging. The best anti-aging cream is meditation. <laughs> there you go. Man, it lowered the stress. Yeah, no, uh, daily routine is really, I, I walk every day for about 10 to 15,000 steps. You know, I hydrate a lot. Um, I meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. I exercise once a day. I do a minimalist approach to exercise. Um, I try to eat whole foods and just, you know, I don't have a lot of, I curate my my friendships very carefully make sure that i'm not i'm not um exposing myself to too much unnecessary drama and and i do what brings me joy and i have a very purposeful life so you know and i don't drink alcohol i stopped drinking alcohol when i was 25 so um it's been over two decades and when when i look back i would attribute that as having the greatest impact on staying youthful. And I talk about that in the book as well. The opposite of spiritual minimalism is the state of inebriation. And um, so that was like a pivot, that, a, a pivot point for you. I assume it usually is. Well, I, yeah, I wasn't like, I wouldn't consider myself to be a heavy drinker by any stretch, you know, but I was still, I was in my twenties. So I would drink, you know, on, a, on, on occasion. And, but I just, I kind of did the math one day and decided that it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense for me. It, it was expensive. It was, I never made great decisions that I was proud of later. I couldn't sleep that well afterward, you know? Um, I mean, I could just go on and on and on of the, right. listing off the downsides. And then I tried to think, okay, what are the upsides? And I couldn't, honestly, I couldn't think of any upsides to it, you know? So it just made sense. And I said, okay, I'm gonna stop I'm going to stop doing this, not thinking I'll do it. I'll stop forever. I just said, let me just see if I can stop doing it. And I went 
think three or six months initially, very gradually winding myself down and then eventually stopping altogether. And I always told myself if I ever wanted to go back and have a glass of wine or something, I would do that. And I just never did. And then I went like 15, 20 years without drinking any alcohol. And nowadays, if there's like some sort of celebratory occasion, I won't be like, you know, Scrooge when you put a glass of champagne, I may have to sip, but it's not something I think about when I go to dinner, I'm not looking at the, the wine list and, you know, trying to discipline myself to not have it. I just don't even, it doesn't even register now. So, and, and that's just why I talk about it in the book. It's like, it's not about abstaining indefinitely. It's just, it's just, you don't want to feel like you have to have it in order to be yourself or in order to relax. If you, like if you're in that state, you. it controls you. Exactly. It's and interesting. You, you said want, it's like the, I'm sorry. Uh, no. You said it's like the opposite of meditation in some way. Like it's disengaging as opposed to like engaging with what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. Like with your relationship with yourself, instead it like disengages with your relationship with yourself and then in turn with others, whether it's other people, environment or whatever. Um, yeah. Meditation. Um, it, it puts you in the present moment. Alcohol takes you out of the present moment. Right, just yeah. keep it really simple. simple. And, and ultimately, what everybody wants to have in life and experience in life, happiness, fulfillment, joy, contentedness, that requires present moment awareness. It requires more present moment awareness, not less. So, and again, you can have alcohol, but you want to prioritize present moment awareness. And then once you prioritize that and you stabilize it, then you can go and have your alcohol every now and again. And your baseline is present moment awareness as opposed to having very little present moment awareness and having to drink as a means of escaping whatever else is happening because you're not present. Right. Yeah. I'm just over seven years now, no booze after pretty much a daily habit for like over 20 years. What was and your like, drink? Yes. Whatever. <laughs> yes. Whatever was, whatever was on offer. <laughs> I, I really, I really liked it all. I mean, I had my, preferences i was big into like scotch and cognac and bourbon mm -hmm. but um i loved wine if i was having steak i loved beer if it was hot outside um you know there was like a drink for all occasions to me and i just wanted to drink whatever was right for the, you know that day based on what i was doing there's a a good drink for the morning good drink for late night mm -hmm. i had it a lot i started really really young I, in fact i remember like the first time i was at a um, I got drunk when I was eight years old at a, like a family dinner for a holiday. Nobody noticed. It was a Passover dinner and Passover. There's like this big ordeal where the dinner is like three or four hours long. And there's all these periodics breaks for like a sip of wine. And nobody noticed like the little kid just going along with all those sips. And then I was in the bathroom. I had to like hold myself up with the wall <laughs> like I I didn't know until years later like oh that's what I was drunk it like stuck in my mind I didn't start regularly then but that was like my first introduction but in my like 15 I had a regular habit and then not until I really stopped drinking did I really notice why I was drinking what I was soothing but it's interesting to hear you say you kind of weaned off slowly I I tried to stop for a long time and had like an internal battle for probably a couple of years, knowing that I hated, I hated the fact that I was addicted to it 
and then one day just decided to stop and um that was a pivot point and meditation played a big role i remember using like a a hypnosis based meditation like every day for like a month to kind of get through that first month Mm -hmm. so uh, mine was like a more abrupt process i didn't um have that easy off-ramp the smoother off-ramp like sounds like you did um that's interesting you know more than one way to go from a to b but uh, it is interesting how you mentioned, like it really takes you out of the present moment. You know, that is a, a simplified way of, of looking at it. You mentioned um, earlier about curiosity. Going back even farther, can you remember when uh, you first had like a sense of curiosity? Like how young were you when you decided there was something interesting about yourself that you wanted to, to learn or explore? Hmm. Or about the world in general? Um, well, I certainly I remember being very curious uh, as a kid, but I'll tell you an experience that just popped in my head right now. It's when I was in high school. And I remember having to spend, well, not having to, I remember spending a lot of time thinking about what I was going to wear to school. And that was an experience that, you know, had developed over the years. And so one day, I just said to myself, does anybody even pay attention to what I'm wearing? And I decided to run an experiment by wearing the same thing every day for a week. And back in those days, this is, we're talking like the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, I I had like some beige parachute pants. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And uh, like a purple mock turtleneck and so, or something along those lines. So that was my outfit for the week. So it wasn't exactly conspicuous. It wasn't like black on black, you know, <laughs> it was something that would, you know, relatively be noticed. And I did that every day. I would come home and I'd wash the clothes and I'd wear them this, again the next day. And I did that. And, and, and I don't know if anybody noticed, but no one said a thing. Even if they did notice, they didn't say anything. I didn't notice anything. And then and that was the first time I, I realized that maybe people aren't paying as much attention to me as I once thought they were. And maybe everyone's so concerned about what they're wearing and how they're presenting that they're not really seeing much else. So that was actually very liberating because I stopped Place, placing so much importance on what I was wearing on a day-to-day basis at school. But then, you know, that, that was a key domino for other questions that also um, were assumptions that I was, or misconceptions that I was walking around with about life in general and, um, and how much people are paying attention to anything. And so, of course, now as you get older, you realize nobody's paying attention to you at all. And the things that stop us from following our heart or from taking a leap of faith are are mainly based, rooted in other people's opinions. And if we didn't have that, we weren't worried about what our parents were going to think or what our friends were going to think or what whoever was going to say about what we're doing, then we would probably explore a lot more we would probably be a lot more curious we would probably express ourselves um, a lot more honestly and so that is again a sense of liberation and freedom that can come from being reflective and 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 going inside and clearing out 
the stuff that keeps us attached to other people's opinions, which is the essence of this concept of spiritual minimalism. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like the, the insecurities we have, you know, thinking about what we're supposed to do and what kind of pressures that we put on ourselves that are not just like illusions, but they're just like totally made up between the left ear and the right ear and they get in the way. Yeah, it's a lot more than just uh, getting rid of the clothes and the furniture, as you say. But there is benefits to that. I know when I, um, like, you, it's it's hard for me to think. Like, I think about living out of a backpack, light, and you've been doing mm. it for a while, and I'm like, what would I put in there? <laughs> like, like, other than the couple outfits, um, where do you prioritize after that? Is there, let me ask you this, uh, you, you do some traveling, seems like, and- uh, I do a lot of traveling, yeah. So everything you have to bring with you, other than obvious, you need some clothes. Um, is there anything that's in the backpack that you think would be uh, like a surprise to people, like un unlikely that is worth the value that the space carries with the space being so limited? The biggest object by far in my bag is my meditation puja kit, which is a ceremonial thing that I perform whenever I teach meditation. It has trays and bowls and all kinds of candles and things like that. It takes up probably a, a fifth of the bag of the real estate in, inside my bag. It's the heaviest thing. It's the clunkiest thing. And, um, but it's, I consider that to be the most valuable thing I possess. And so, uh, A, I use it for when I'm conducting meditation trainings but B, it has, um, it's, it's interesting because it's something that people seem think is not necessary when going through that process of learning something like meditation, but it's actually the most important aspect to the whole, to the whole experience. And this is kind of the difference in the Eastern mindset and the Western mindset. The Western mindset is find the active ingredient, whether it's a mantra, whether it's your breath or whatever, Go on YouTube, so do a quick search, find the hacks and the tips, you know, to shortcut the process and then start doing it. And if you get tangible benefit from it right away, then that means it works. If you don't get any tangible benefit right away, then that means it doesn't work. So you stop it and you try something different. That's the Western mindset in a nutshell. The Eastern mindset is, well, in order to have benefit, you have to make some sort of exchange. You have to give something of value to get something of value which could be your time, could be your attention, could be you going off to the Himalayas, the Himalayas and you know, in search of a guru or a teacher, which requires time, expense, resources, and planning, et cetera. But all of that is sort of built into the process of when you finally come across this person, because you've had to give up things along the way, it opens you up to receive more and to benefit more from the thing that you're learning. And so, um, so that's what that represents to me is, you know, I'm carrying this thing around and then I give other people the opportunity to enjoy this beautiful ceremony where they have to come to me in order to experience that. I don't do this online on Zoom or anything like that. You have to literally do whatever you have to do to get into the same room with me. And I'll now travel around and, and teach this from, from, you know, one place to the next. And it takes about three to four days. And by, by the time you finish doing it, 
you have an experience that you'll never forget and you have uh, the ability to do something that may have been a mystery to you before, but it started with that process of the ceremony that I perform with that tray and those bowls. So it's an exchange for me in being able to have the effect that I want to have. It's, it's an exchange for them. And that's one of the reasons why I carry it. Everything else in my bag is replaceable. I can get a new pair of pants, a new pair of underwear, and I change things out all the time, but that I have to carry around with me. And um, so I think that would surprise people that that gotcha. takes up so much space in my bag. Yeah, it sounds important for your process. So you're doing these teachings or trainings all in person. That's great to hear. Mm -hmm. And you're travel. You're doing these all over the place. I've been doing these for about over 15 years now, and I've done them all over the world. And it's it's one of the things that I do. I also give keynote talks. I'm also on panels. I'm also I have a podcast. You know, so I carry my podcast equipment. I carry my oh, blazer wow. for my keynotes. I carry my my band for my ex my daily exercise. You know, so I have everything that I do. I need to be able to do it from this little backpack. And it's not like a, what you'd imagine, like a big backpacker. It's like, I'm going to go backpack across Europe. It's not, it's like a backpack that a kid would carry just to third grade, you know, who's, they don't have a bunch of textbooks or anything like that. It's like a day pack almost, but that's, you must be that's good at the, folding stuff up small. That's <laughs> the art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I read the magic, was it the life-changing magic of tidying up with Marie Kondo and okay. she teaches you how to like roll your clothes so that they're happy. And so it's about making the clothes happy. And, nice. <laughs> but nice at the end of the day, clothes. yeah, it's, you really just have to ask yourself questions. Like, what do I, what do I truly need? Kind of like what you were saying earlier. And, um, and before I, I officially took the leap on in May of 2018, I had been traveling quite a bit about once a month, I would go on the road for a week or two. And I would, I was intentional about seeing, okay, which clothes am I always putting into my bag? What am I always wearing? And which ones am I taking, but I'm not wearing as much? And so over the course of those years that I was traveling out of a carry-on, I was able to sort of curate what I felt like was always in the rotation, the greatest hits from my wardrobe. And I just went with that when I first started. And um it's surprising how little you, you actually uh, use on the road, you know? And if you find things that you really love, and that's my standard now, whenever I replace an item, I only buy things or acquire things that I love. If I just like it a lot, I do not get it. If I love the way it fits and I love the way it looks, then it meets the standard to go into the bag. Because guess what? I got to get rid of something else because there's just no room. So I give right. myself the freedom of choicelessness in that way, which is another principle of spiritual minimalism and get rid of something in that way. I always have something that I really love. So when I'm looking at what am I gonna wear today, it's not like, oh, kind of like this, but I, you know, everything could be a potential option. There's something to be said too, like for not having to spend time on that decision. And um, I think, for some reason, for many reasons, cultural society guys have this a little easier than than girls. But uh, there's something to like putting your decision of what you're going to wear into like three seconds and not spending the time and the mental capacity, mental energy, figuring that out. It's nice to have very few choices. 
what did you call it? Choicelessness? Uh, Choicelessness. Choicelessness. That might be another word you made up, but I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) So logistically, these trainings you do, are these like retreat style, like all day for three or four days straight where you're just kind of submerged or is that? Yeah, some of them are, some of them are retreats. Some of them are, are just two day workshops. Some of them are just a couple of hours, uh, a couple of times a day. So it's, it's, it's all of the above, depending on where I am and, and, and who's, who's coming to learn something. Gotcha. Yeah. I want to address an earlier point you made though, about spending time to think about what you're going to wear. Okay. So I think that we spend a lot of time doing a lot of things that may not be the best use of our time um, that outweigh the the time we are investing in thinking about our, our presentation, which, you know, people judge books by their cover. Like, let's just be honest about it. Like, so what we, how we're presenting in a, in a professional environment can make a difference. I'm not saying you have to wear something new every day, but you do want to look the part. So like when I'm giving talks and stuff, I definitely want to look the part and it's taken a lot of thought. Like, how do I get a shirt iron without an iron? Like, what if they don't have an iron? What am I going to do in that situation? Cause I've got a couple of dress shirts that I wear and um, you know, you figure out workarounds and solutions to these things. At one point I was, I had this little travel iron that I was carrying around, which again may seem like you don't really need to take that with you, but it, it was, I was taking it with me for a period of time to try to, until I worked out, you know, a better solution. And my point is sometimes you have to think a little bit more about something in order to think less about it. And if you're going through a phase as the listener, if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, why I spent a lot of time contemplating this, but it's through that time you're investing now in contemplation that you'll eventually arrive at a better solution. And I think the way we want to think about these things is always, okay, what's a better solution to the thing that I'm doing today? And the only way you can really do that is by split testing it and trying a bunch of things. So sometimes I will have two of the same item. I'll go and buy a couple pairs of pants because you never know how it's going to fit as you wear it over time. So there will be some overlap. And then eventually after maybe wearing both for a few weeks, I'll decide, okay, this is the one that I want to keep and I'll get rid of the other one. That makes sense. Sounds like you've fine-tuned the process of- <laughs> I've thought invest- very deeply investing, about all Investing up front so that you're giving yourself relief later and really uh, prioritizing like the managing of the most valuable resource we have, which, which is the time. And you know, what we're putting our time and attention on. So you apply this in a lot of different directions. You mentioned uh, the simplicity around your exercise too. You said you travel with a band. Bands are great because they travel well. Um, what's that routine look like? It's so. How do during, you look during, at like, uh, like a mo- I'm sorry, like a movement practice when you're taking this um, simplicity angle? Yeah, that's a good question. So during the pandemic, I stopped going to the gym as most people or a lot of people did. Um, because my gyms were closed 
and I almost exclusively went to the gym before that every every as often as I could pretty much every day and I would do this you know be in the gym for 45 minutes an hour and sprint and lift weights and you know do all the things and I'm one of those people who actually likes going to the gym like you know I don't have to talk myself into going to the gym I've been through periods where I've had to do that but for the most part I'm very much in the habit of training my body so during the pandemic when I wasn't able to go to the gym I found it more difficult to work out because in order to get the same effect of lifting heavy you have to do a lot of reps of calisthenics of body weight movement and um and it just wasn't that enjoyable doing an hour of that, you know, body weight movement. So I said, you know, what's some, what, how can I do more with less? Because I was skipping days of not doing anything and just doesn't, didn't feel like I was staying in shape in the way that I wanted to. And so I created this way of exercising that I didn't have to think about that was the less is more approach. So I said, okay, let's do one exercise a day, just one, and let's do less than I am capable of doing and then build from there and focus more on quality as over quantity. Before I was just trying to do like, you know, a hundred or something of something, hundred pushups, hundred, whatever, but I was just throwing myself around, you know, trying to just get it done more focused on the outcome versus the process. And so I said, okay, let's, let's devote Mondays. Mondays are gonna be my push-up days. I'm just gonna do 20 push-ups. Now I could probably do hundred push-ups sloppily, but I'm gonna do 20 of the best quality push-ups that I can do, full extension, keep the, back, the, the plank um, shape the whole time and breathe and you know the whole thing. And um, so I did that on Monday and the whole thing may have taken me five minutes, right? But that was it, my workout was done for Monday. Tuesday, okay, air squats, just standing feet hips distance apart and just bend the knees and squat down as far as I could and then stand back up and do that 20 times. But again, go for quality over quantity, go a little bit deeper, ass to the grass and then back up. And Wednesdays would be back day. So I happened to have this pull-up bar around the corner from me, got the band, wrapped the band around the bar, put my foot on the other end of the band, use that as an assist. So that way I was able to practice quality over quantity with the pull-ups. Thursdays, walking lunges, you know, 20 on each leg. Fridays would be the opposite of whatever I did on, on um, it would be either upper body or, 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 or back again. So I'd either do push-ups or pull-ups. Saturdays would be biceps, triceps, and shoulder using the band. Just I would wrap the band over the door and I would stand at the ed edge of the door and I would do tricep um, pulls or bicep curls using the band, wrapping it under the door, using doing the bicep curls. So I went on YouTube, found ways to do this stuff, body weight, and, and leverage the use of the band. And so I would do that every week. And every day, I knew exactly what I was going to do. And it was just one exercise. And then I would add two reps onto the exercise each week. 
So over 50 weeks, over a year, I was up to doing 100 high quality reps. And the whole thing at that point was only taking me 20 to 30 minutes to finish. So I always finished feeling like I got a great workout. I didn't cheat myself in terms of movement, rest, and all of those uh, intangibles that most people don't really think about. And, and I didn't have to think, what am I going to do today? Because that's part of the paralysis analysis right there. Like, what am I going to do today? I already knew what I, I know what I'm doing today. So when I'm traveling and I'm going to be somewhere on a Wednesday and a Thursday, I know Wednesdays are back days. So maybe I'm going to look on Google to see, okay, what parks are nearby this place where I'm staying so that I can go to a pull-up bar if I'm going to need one of those, right? And if I didn't find a pull-up bar, I would just do you know, bent over rows using the bands. So I would go on YouTube and figure out, okay, what's another way to do a back exercise from my hotel room? Because I already knew I was going to do back on Wednesday, a week before when I booked the travel. And on Mondays, if I have to wake up really early to catch a flight, and let's say it's an all-day travel day type of thing, then, you know, I may think, okay, well, I'm going to do my push-ups during my layover, because I've got this two-hour layover in wherever, and I can just go to the gate early and just do my, I don't need exercise clothes. I can do these from anywhere because it's not, it's about quality over um, quantity. And then I had walking happening in the, in the meantime, I was tracking my steps. So I was doing 10,000 steps a day where possible. So if I go to the Atlanta airport, I'm not taking the tram from the terminal, from the baggage claim terminal to say concourse C, I'm walking because I can walk there and I can get 5,000 steps just going to concourse C. 5,000 steps is two miles, right? And so you learn to think in terms of, of steps. Getting one mile takes you 20 minutes. That's 2,500 steps. Two miles is 5,000 steps. That takes you 40 minutes. So you can kind of time yourself and how long it's going to take you to get places based on how many steps you want to get. So again, this wasn't an overnight process. I like learn all of this throughout those months and those years of the pandemic. And that's what allowed me to create this minimalist approach to movement so that I always feel like I'm moving. I always feel like I have my exercise. And then eventually I went back into the gym and I incorporated the same philosophy to uh, compound exercises in the gym. So going back, so Mondays are now my bench press days. Tuesdays are my deadlift days. Wednesdays are my weighted pull-up days. Thursdays are my squat days, right? And so like that, I still have the same routine, but I'm just using heavier weights so that I, I don't have to do 100 reps now. Now I'm doing five sets of five reps, focusing on quality over quantity. Gotcha. Oh, it's important to find something that works for you. I'm thinking about listening to you describe that in my mind. I've been doing exercise programs for a long time. I, I own a gym and I would struggle with that level of simplicity, like as far as number of activities per day. I mean, it's totally useful and it's great and it's very accessible and portable, but my, that would be a, a battle with my ego for sure. <laughs> you mean doing less than you're capable of doing? Doing only one exercise mm -hmm. per session. I really enjoy my time in the gym. I mean, I own a gym, a brick and mortar gym. I have a pretty legit gym in my basement. I just built an outdoor calisthenics gym in my backyard. I love being on a, on a mat. I love being on the ground moving. So it would just be like a struggle. 
but I mean, I, it, it's great to show that there's like so many ways to, you know, navigate the journey and there's a lot of ways to be successful and the walking is really underrated. And that's something that I think a lot of people just don't realize that they're missing. Mm -hmm. They don't realize like the far reaching benefits that not just the, the physical nature of walking has, but the, the mental component of that time alone. I mean, I know it's not like stillness, but it kind of is still like a medit or can be a meditative process, just walking, especially by yourself. 100%. And honestly, I don't think the one exercise a day would be enough if I wasn't doing all the walking. I think the walking is a really great way to supplement the movement. So you're still moving, right? right. You still have that slow cardio, but and it, it, walking 10,000 steps takes an hour and 20 minutes. So um so that's a lot of that's a fair amount of movement. and it's not all at the same time it's i like the great thing about being here in mexico city is that it's a walking culture so everybody's walking all the time so after this call usually i would get up and go take a walk i would go take a 20 minute walk and then come back and do the next thing and work for another couple of hours and then get up and take another walk and you know go get a tea and then come back and so it's just it's just i don't even I don't even um, have to really intentionally try to get these steps. I'll just, at the end of the day, I'll look at my, my tracker and it's like, oh, wow, I've, I've walked 13,000 steps today without even really trying. Yeah. So um, that's great. Yeah. Where I live, I live in like the suburbs and very small percentage of people do regular walking. Like you could see all the people, you know, everybody <laughs> knows the people in the For town walking. that walk because like mm -hmm. they stand out when you're driving down the road. Like, there's that guy walking. He was walking yesterday too. Yeah. It's funny. Like I just had a client recently and she's like, you know, I want to incorporate more exercise, more movement. And the other day I had like a 10 minute break and I felt like it wasn't worth it. And I'm like, no, you don't like, there's nothing better you can do than to go out, get in the sun, walk for five minutes and turn around and walk back. If you have a 10 minute break, like it is the absolute lowest hanging fruit, most bang for the buck of that time. And over time, the compounding effects of that will, will create an absolute different organism. Like you do that once or twice a day, and then you fast forward two or three years, you're a different human being from the benefits of that. But yeah, I've got a whole section in the book on just walking and I, I call it, well, I've adopted a, 18th century French, French aristocratic term for it, which is flaneuring. Flaneuring is walking without a, a destination in mind. Well, the destination is the walking itself, I should okay. say. It's, it's walking itself. And again, it's a way to, like you said, it's a meditative experience because it's a way to just be present. Um, obviously, you can listen to music and podcasts and books and stuff, but you can also just walk and just be there, be in the environment. It's for itself and you'll always notice things that you've never noticed before. And it just kind of puts you in the headspace to stop and smell the metaphorical flowers. As you're experiencing life, you're in the sun, you know, your body is, is, is also benefiting from that experience. Your, your immune system is getting stronger. You're becoming more functionally resilient and, and, and agile. Um, and that, you know, there's so many benefits from it. But what I suggest is because most people in America don't live in walking cultures, we're not a walking society in America. We're very much a driving society outside of places like New York, maybe Chicago. Um, 
is when you're going on your errands, don't be that person looking for a parking space right in the front, you know, and circling around the block and around and around trying to find the parking space right in front. Park in the back of the parking lot. Obviously, if it's a dangerous area, then that's not, this is not the instruction for you. But if it's, you're in a safe place and, and it's not like freezing cold or anything like that, park, park far away. When I was in Austin on a business trip recently, this is no exaggeration. I would park a mile and a half away, away from where I was going so that I had an opportunity, the freedom of choicelessness to walk <laughs> from the car to where I was going and then back. And so I was able to get those steps in without, without um, making it easy for me to skip it. And, um, and so anybody can do that, you know, especially if it's an area that has a little bit of, you know, natural beauty, right? I'm not saying walk through the hood, you know. Right. No, it is an opportunity miles. though. Like that's the key word there. Like that might, for some people, that's the only time in nature you might but get But you have to, to create that. that. You have to create that. You can do that by just parking farther right. away. I remember I was going through a rough patch uh, emotionally and physically, and I was re really relying on um, some of the like mindfulness concepts. I was relying on gratitude a lot in this phase and really needing it to like nourish my mind to get through the day. And I would park at the end, uh, you know, far away, not a mile and a half, but, and I would like <laughs> on my way to walk in the building, I would pay like a lot of attention to like the ground beneath my feet. And I would actually, I would, I would think about being grateful for the people that like laid the asphalt and like imagine them coming home from like work and seeing their family and like being grateful for the work they put in that I have this, you know, parking lot <laughs> to, to walk into my building where the gym was, or I would lean on it a lot too. And I was like eating, just thinking about the people working in, in the fields, whatever, cultivating the food. But um, yeah, like you mentioned the word opportunity, and that really resonates with me. I don't think people it's, I think it's probably far too common that people don't see those opportunities and they're you're just a little you know you're not present you're stuck you're running mm -hmm. through the motions of life you have all the stresses of the to-do list and you got to hurry up to get from here to here the pressures of productivity do 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 not bbb and um you know that's a, it's it can be an uphill battle and if you never well it's no battle if you never shine a light on it you know you just don't notice but uh, there's a lot of value in shining light on these things and seeing them as opportunities. So you mentioned- it's really, really it's really easy to track your step. It's, it's, it gets more addictive if you track your steps. And for people who have an iPhone, right. all you have to do is open your health app. It all, they all come with the health app. Really? Open the health, yeah. You don't need like a thing around your wrist? No, 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 no. Because you typically have your phone on you, right? So if your phone is on you, it's tracking your steps already. I didn't know. So if that. you if you open your health, you have your phone on you right now. I do. I don't want to tinker with it while I'm on the podcast, but yeah, I have it. <laughs> <laughs> if you open your health app, it'll show you. Just scroll down on the front, that front page, and it'll show you how many steps you've taken that day. Okay, so I, I make a note. I'm going to check it out. 
when we is get that off. simple oh. is that simple to do and then i'm sure there's an android equivalent to that which you can google but once that you start be a looking slippery at those slope steps, for me man i have an addictive personality like i could i'll more than gamify that i i could uh it could start to detract um for me, it's that's like a, that's a problem you want to have. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm so addicted yeah. to tracking my steps. I can't help but get 10,000 a day. Interesting. I look for more like the number of times I walk out the door. I try to get out at least three times a day where, you know, I'm putting one foot in front of the other. It might be five minute loop on the like trail in my backyard, or it might be the 40 minute out and back through the neighborhood. But, um, but yeah, I mean, for, you know, different tools, you know, there's a lot of tools. So you want to find the tools that help for you. So that's, that's, that's great that, you know, the vast majority of people have that already available. If, if that's a tool for them. You don't need a wearable. That's, that's the big misconception is that, oh, I need to go get an Apple watch to track. No, you don't need to do that. It's already in your phone. Yeah. I did not know that. Learn something. Um, you mentioned earlier, like that you get two like meditation sessions a day are those like traditional seated stillness what's your process around meditation so in 2003 i learned vedic meditation vedic v-e-d-i-c which is um very similar to transcendental meditation and that means you have a personalized mantra that you get from your teacher and you use the mantra not with the intention of focusing on anything, but you use the mantra to forget about the fact that you're meditating. And, uh, and so it puts you in a position to have a very settled mind and body experience. And there's a couple types of meditators. There's meditators who can't wait for the time to finish. <laughs> Right. It can, even if it's just 10 minutes, like, oh, they're just constantly looking at how much time there is left. And then once the chime goes off, they're relieved because now it means that they can get on with the rest of their day and start doing stuff. And then there are meditators who don't want the time to finish in the same way that when you're sleeping and your alarm goes off, you may be thinking to yourself, oh, where's the snooze button? I want to get just a little bit more sleep. This feels so good and so restful. I'm not ready to get up. Well, meditation can actually feel like that as well. And I'm fortunate enough to have had that experience um, thousands of times through my practice. And I've been able to teach other people how to have that experience. So I meditate 20 minutes twice a day and I'm in that camp where I don't want the time to end, but I have to come out just like I have to wake up because I have things I need to do <laughs> in order to get the day going. And, uh, but I'd rather, I'd rather leave the practice wanting more than than the opposite. And so that's been my experience with meditation. And in the book, oh, in the book, ahead. I'm recommending people just do 10 minutes of meditation using a sort of minimalist approach to the practice, which is, which is stripping away some of the focus-based activities so that you're just practicing pure being. When you teach in person, is that Vedic style yes. the practice you lean on? Okay. Correct. So I'm giving people personal mantras and I'm showing them how to use it. So where do those mantras come from? Like, how are they derived? So you, the, the mantras are, already exist. They come from a, a subset of mantras called bija mantras, which means primordial sounds. So in other words, they are human intonations of sounds of nature. This is the way it's been explained over, you know, the hundreds of years they've, they've been used in meditation, maybe thousands of years at this point but they're sounds of nature. 
and they come from the Sanskrit language, which is the language of the Vedas. So the important thing to remember is they don't mean anything, right? So a mantra could be, I'm just gonna make one up. Mantra could be um, Ram Tam Sam. It could be three syllables or it could be Ram Tam or it could be Ram, okay? And so some people will get the one syllable, some people will get maybe two syllable mantra, which could be tam, sam, dam. Some people may get a, a three syllable, four syllable mantra. And you get mantras based on your age and life stage. So as a teacher, you get trained in how to spot diagnose. Okay, this person meets these criteria. So they would get this one syllable mantra. This person will get a two syllable mantra based on those criteria, et cetera, et cetera. And then you just chant that in your mind or out loud for 20 minutes? No, you think it to yourself very softly. So you're not chanting it, you're not focusing on it. And in a typical meditation experience, you may only be aware of the mantra for a minute out of the 20 minutes. And the rest of the time, you're kind of in this dreamy state. So the mantra initiates you going into that dreamy state. And then eventually you can reach a point where you're not thinking anything. That's why in transcendental meditation, they call it that because you transcending means you go beyond something and the thing you're going beyond in that experience is your is your thinking mind but the caveat is you'll never know you're not thinking when you're not thinking because the awareness that you're thinking not thinking is a thought <laughs> so you have to not have that thought in order to experience the not thinking state but that's what causes it to feel really good and juicy and delicious and then you come out and you want to go back in in the same way that if you have a really good dream and you wake up, you want to go back into that really good dream. It feels just like that when you're coming out of meditation. Now, did you, was there a journey there to like, did you try a lot of different styles of meditation and then yes. eventually land on that one? Yeah, I, I tried every style of meditation in the four or five years prior to meeting my teacher. And, um, and then a friend of mine introduced me to the man who became my meditation teacher in 2003. And I didn't, I didn't, I, I wasn't necessarily looking for a new style of meditation. I kind of figured meditation was this thing that you just had to struggle through. And maybe at some point you would get past this threshold of struggling in the monkey mind. And that's where you'll experience nirvana and bliss. But as it turns out, I just didn't really understand how to, how to get to that place in a reliable way. So that's what my teacher uh, taught me to do. And that's what I now teach other people how to do is, is understand how to meditate in concert with your thinking mind, because the mind is not really the issue. It's how you're responding to the mind that is problematic. If, if what you're getting in meditation are these very clunky, thought-filled experiences. Hmm. Nice. Um, before we wrap this up, if you have a few more minutes, I wouldn't yeah. mind getting a, maybe a preview of your, your more recent book, Knowing Where to Look. Am I saying that mm -hmm. right? Knowing Where yeah. to Look. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a, a little idea of um, what brought you to write that, what that's about? Sure. So I wrote a book on meditation in 2016 called Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. Prior to that, my first book was a self-published book called The Inner Gym, 30, a 30-day 30 workout for strengthening happiness. And it took me three and a half years to write that book. And 
I went through several manuscripts, several bouts of imposter syndrome, several bouts of overcoming insecurity, et cetera. So when I got the deal to write the meditation book, um, a couple of years later, I was really insecure about my ability to write this book. And this was a deal with Penguin Random House, one of the biggest, probably the biggest publisher around. And I didn't want to screw it up. So part of me was thinking maybe I should get like a ghost writer or somebody to help me write a co-writer or whatever. And my, my agent was like, no, you write the book. You can write the book. So I thought, okay, I'm going to approach this like working out because I want to become a better writer. I need to practice writing. I need to practice writing on a regular basis. And so I was a big fan at the time of sort of painting myself into a corner when it came to commitments that I wanted to do on a regular basis. So I created an email called Light's Daily Dose of Inspiration. And um, the idea was to send out an inspirational email, a story, anecdote, you know, something that was inspiring every day. Oh, that's I was in, pressure. I was inspired. <laughs> I was inspired by Seth Godin's daily email. But again, like working out, I wanted to work out every day. I didn't want to take days off. And, um, and I wanted to practice storytelling. I wanted to practice communicating ideas in ways that were effective, accessible, and digestible. So I was really nervous to hit send on that first email because I knew that I was probably going to run out of ideas after a few weeks. But I hit send anyway, and sure enough, I ran out of ideas after a few weeks. And I was like, holy shit, now what am I going to do? And I remember sitting on my couch late one night, it was probably close to midnight, and my emails were set to go out every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. And I had nothing. I was completely out. But I had been meditating at that point for, you know, almost 20 years, and um, and I just sat on the couch and put my laptop to the side and just closed my eyes. And then eventually this idea bubbled up from within. And I was like, that's it. That's the, the story for tomorrow. And I opened my laptop and I quickly typed it out. And then I sent it out the next morning. And I realized that that quote by Maya Angelou, which is you can't run out of creativity because creativity generates creativity. That became my experience. Just showing up every day facilitated the reception, my receptivity to some other idea coming through me. And so I would say about 40% of the time, what went out in that next morning's email was something that was, was, fed to me by, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert and Stephen Pressfield call it the muse. Um, you can call it higher intelligence or guidance or something like that. I don't know, but that's what it started to feel like. So I, I didn't have to be responsible for coming up with the story. I just had to be responsible for creating the space. And, uh, and so that started on June the 6th, 2016, and it's still going. So it's been over seven years, over 20, I think like 2,500 emails at this point. And so That's my amazing. previous book, Knowing Where to Look, was a, is a compilation. The subtitle is 
108 daily doses of inspiration. So it's a compilation of those emails that got the most engagement, that had the biggest impact, the most responses, et cetera. And, uh, and just the stories that I connected with the most. And a lot of those stories in that book were stories that I channeled. They were not stories that I, that I you know, heard somewhere prior to me sitting down and, and writing them out. So, so that, that's a very special body of stories that I'm you know, happy, obviously, to share with the world. And uh, yeah, and that's where it came from. That's awesome. That word channel. I mean, that resonates with me. It's like, sometimes we're just a conduit. It's like, you just got to make space, get still. I know some of my best ideas. It's like, uh, if you just stop, like you get off the phone, you do some breath work, or you listen to the right music, you just like create space for something to come up. You have, you're not trying for something to come up. There's no like work involved. Right. And the the universe, like uh, with finesse, just like something will just arise or emerge. Yeah. And the other thing is, I did, this is another desirable side effect is I now find myself inundated with inspiration all the time. Like it's really hard to have a bad day when you're the inspirational guy. Right. <laughs> I mean, just imagine if you had a blog, a daily blog called um, Red Cars. And every day you blog about some red car that you saw somewhere, right? How many red cars would you see on a given day versus somebody who's just like casually walking around? If you were to ask that person, hey, how many red cars did you see yesterday? I don't remember, probably, I don't know, maybe one. If you have the blog, you see red cars all over the place. You may, oh, there were 17 red cars yesterday. And so if you're looking for gratitude, if you do something related to gratitude, you're gonna find gratitude everywhere. If you're doing something related to inspiration, you're gonna see it everywhere. If you're doing something related to whatever, you're gonna see it everywhere. So it was a really cool way to understand that what you're looking for is what you're gonna find. And if you want to change your experience, that's a really quick way to do so, is just be intentional about um, looking for the thing that you ultimately want. Yeah. Choose wisely what you want to see in the world mm -hmm. because uh, you're likely to see it. Yeah. It's there. If you're looking for drama, you're going to find drama. If you're looking for excuses. You're going to find excuses. Right. So pick what you want to, to see. That's great. Okay. Light. I want to respect your time. If people want to learn more, I assume all your books are available online on Amazon or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everywhere books right. are sold. And, and what's a uh, good way for people to find out more about you or reach out to you? Follow me on the socials at Light Watkins. And then also my website is lightwatkins.com. Light, I want to thank you for taking your time and chatting with me today. And for the listeners out there, always grateful for your listening. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. I hope everybody has a terrific day. Thank you, man. Well, I want to thank you one more time for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I sure did. There were some real gems in there and got some fresh inspiration. I hope that you also were inspired. And I encourage you to check out more of Light's work. I look forward to reading some of his books soon and hopefully our paths cross again in the future. Thanks again, everybody. Enjoy your day.